feel like being here this morning is like just a victory in and of itself. Um, you know, if you've had a crazy week, which a lot of us have, uh, it's good to see your faces. Uh, and it's just good to be here. So we are back in the book of Luke. Uh, we took a break for Advent and uh, now we're coming back to it. And so uh, we're going to dive into it and I'm going to give you a little bit more context of where we are just to kind of help set us back up. But uh, in 2021, you know, I try and read a number of books each year. I inevitably fail um, the number that I want to read. But uh, I read a book um, called The Book of Beautiful Questions. And uh, it's a book about uh, how we ask questions, how to ask better questions, the questions we ask. And I noticed that as I was reading it throughout the year, I started paying more attention to the questions that I came across, whether it was questions in conversation, questions in movies, or um, in books themselves. And I just started to realize like some of the questions are a little bit ridiculous, right? So for example, um, Monty Python and the Search for the Holy Grail, right? The Bridge of Death. Um, if you don't know Monty Python is, it's a spoof on the King Arthur, King Arthur series you know, Lancelot, the Knights of the Round Table, et cetera. The bridge of death scene is a scene where they're trying to cross this bridge over a large abyss. Um, there's great peril and they have to pass through the bridge keeper and the bridge keeper says, stop, he who wishes to cross the bridge of death must answer me these questions three, ere the other side he see, right? And you're like, oh wow, this sounds really good. And, you know, he says, so, you know, Lancelot goes across first and he says, uh, ask me the questions, Bridgekeeper. I'm not afraid, right? And so he says, what is your name? Oh, Lancelot of Camelot, right? Uh, what is your quest? I seek the Holy Grail. What is your favorite color? He's like, blue. And he's like, all right, off you go. And you're like, what? That's it, right? And that's what everybody else says too, right? So the next guy comes across. He's like, that's easy. And he asks him the same first two questions, but then the third question is, what? is the capital of Assyria. And he's like, what? Again, just, that's a crazy question. He doesn't know the answer and some kind of magical force, of course, throws him into the abyss. Um, which the answer, by the way, would be Asser, A-S-S-U-R, which is where we get the word Assyria from, unless you're talking about Neo-Assyria, and then that's Nineveh, where Jonah went. That's beside the point, that's a freebie. Um, so, you know, you, you, you watch that scene and you're kind of like, okay, the questions have absolutely nothing to do with anything, right? They're just silly questions. Um, they don't really, they don't advance the plot. They're not particular knowledge they should have, right? They're, they're, just, they're just random questions, it's like trivia. Sometimes though, the questions that we ask are deep and profound, right? And you might find yourself in conversations where you're having deep and profound questions. A lot of us have asked those questions over the last couple of years with COVID and the pandemic, right? It's been crazy. A lot of hurt, a lot of pain, a lot of questions. Uh, this is from a journal. I didn't read this this year. Um, I read it a number of years ago, but it's from a man's journal. Right after his wife died, he wrote for a number of years um, as part of that process. And he says this, he calls it, his wife's name is is H in the journal, okay, just an abbreviation. He says, can I honestly say that H now is anything? The vast majority of people I meet, say at work, would certainly say that she is not. What do I really think? 
They tell me H is happy now that she is at peace. Why are they so sure that all the anguish ends with death? More than half the Christian world and millions in the East believe otherwise. How do they know that she's at rest? He's talking, referring to the doctrine of purgatory, which we don't believe is scriptural. Um, if you want to know more about that, I'll talk to you after the service. And then he asks this, those are all in of themselves very profound questions, questions that are really good and right to grapple with. Um, but then he asks this question at the end, which I think it just is, again, incredible. And are all these notes the senseless writings of a man who won't accept the fact that there is nothing we can do with suffering except to suffer it? Wow, what a good question. Um, to think about. And when we think about the questions that we ask God, which is what we come across in our passage, we got questions that are being asked of Jesus, right? Uh, and we'll talk about those questions in a second. When we think about it, we could, we could separate the questions we ask into kind of two broad camps. There are questions that we ask that are designed, or, or at least maybe not even you know, consciously designed, but they're designed to keep God at a distance, to push God away, because we want a particular answer. Or maybe we want to put God in a box, or maybe we want just to not address that area, right? A lot of times we ask those questions about sin struggles in our life, you know, uh, kind of along the lines of the questions like what Satan asked Eve, did God really say, like, God, do you really care if I struggle with this? Do you really care if I give into sin right now? Do you really care about these things? And then there's another camp of questions, which are the questions that are designed to invite God in. Uh, they're questions that bring him into our suffering, bring him into our pain, bring him into our thoughts, and invite him to give us a response that open ourselves up. When we think about the song that we sung, Jesus, I Come, right? They're questions that invite him to come and just say, okay, what do you, what do you want to tell me, right? They open ourselves up. And so we're going to look at those kind of two broad categories of questions as we think about this passage we're going to go through first and look at the details of the different questions because that's important, right? But I want to take a step back then and say, okay, here's the, that's the content of what's in the passage, but what's really going on with all the questions, right? So that's how we're going to look at our text this morning. We'll look at the three questions and their content, and then we will uh, talk about kind of the overarching thing of what's going on. So uh, let's pray as we get started. Father, would you be pleased to minister your spirit to us that he would do the work that Jesus promised in John 14, that the spirit would guide us into all truth this morning. We pray that he would penetrate our hearts even down to the, the deepest places, the places that we don't like to talk about, uh, the places, Father, where we have held on to our own will and our own desires so strenuously. Would we receive the word implanted because it is able to save our souls? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me give you a little context. Um, and I'm going to take just an extra minute to kind of do this because we're jumping back into Luke, right? And we haven't been in Luke for a while. So uh, where we're at in Jesus' three-year ministry, we are in his last three days. Uh, for three days, Jesus will go from... The city of Bethany, which is a short walk over the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. He's going to go back and forth for three days. The third day will be the Passover. 
The first day he cleanses the temple, right? He gets angry, he throws things around, comes back, he's teaching along the way. The second day, he goes in and he teaches all day in the temple, and that's where we are at. Okay, so he's teaching in the temple, he's teaching with authority, and people have no idea how he's doing this. They're stumped. And the characters in our story, right, there's several mentioned, the scribes, the chief priests, the Sadducees. So let me tell you a little bit about like, who the characters are right now. There are three main uh, groups who teach the law in Judaism at the time of Jesus. You probably have heard their names, right? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the priests. Uh, you could think about them, though this is not a one-to-one analogy, but you could think about them like different denominations. They represent different interpretive traditions of the Old Testament. So they believe different things. Like it says uh, in verse uh, 29, uh, sorry, 28, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, as an example, right? So they're different interpretive traditions. The key point in talking about that is that these interpretive traditions, they spend most of their time fighting amongst themselves over the minutia of the law. But now they are united in their opposition against Jesus, right? They're working together. They're collaborating because they're saying, okay, I know we've got our differences, Pharisee, but dude, Jesus is the real problem, right? And so that's what's going on here. The scribes and the chief priests are kind of meta groups, okay? So if you've got those three groups, chief priests is kind of, uh, it, it's fairly self-explanatory, right? It's kind of the most important people of the priestly, uh, of the, the group of priests. The scribes were people who were responsible for copying down, right, both scripture as well as rabbinic teaching amongst those three groups. So another kind of subgroup of that, but they did a lot of teaching on the law because they spent the whole day copying it. And as part of the copying process, they actually read it aloud to make sure that what they were copying was, you know, the right thing. So those are our players. That's who's coming in there. Um, And they are trying to trap Jesus in something because they are seeking to destroy him, right? Um, So let's look at the first question, which comes... In verse 21, it says, So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, and you show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Now let me just say, you don't have to be the Son of God to wade through that bunch of garbage. Right? Like, you want to talk about buttering somebody up? I mean, come on, right? We know, teacher, you teach the truth. Like, you just, you just, you see right through it. But Jesus, of course, understands that. Um, yeah, so it, it's, it's just amusing. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a coin. And whose likeness is inscription? They said Caesar's. And he said, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Pay to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Uh, This is a common teaching, even from the Old Testament. It's not even really a question. It's not even a good question in that sense. Um, They're trying to trick him because they want to be able to charge him, right, with something uh, that they can bring before the court, right? That's the whole point of what they're asking. So they bring Caesar into the equation. But for anyone who studies the Old Testament, it's not even really a question, right? If you think back, so we, I don't know how many years ago it was now, we went through Samuel, 
But 1 Samuel 8, when Israel asks for a king, Samuel warns him and says, if you want a government, if you want a formal government over you, guess what it's going to cost you? It's going to cost you your sons. They're going to go into the army. It's going to cost you your servants. Your servants are going to go and serve in the house and the courts of the king. It's going to cost you your daughters who are going to marry the king's sons. It's going to cost you a tenth of everything that you own because the king's going to take it. Because the government exists in part to protect its people. You, you have to pay for that. That's how it works. And it, this hasn't been said yet, but it echoes the words of what Paul would say in Romans 13, where he literally says, for this reason, for the work of the government, you pay taxes. Right? Because it's how it works. It's how God has set up the institutions to work. So it's not even really a good question. Um, but for us, right, you ask the question, you know, I, I've asked, been asked many financial questions over the years when it comes to taxes, um, whether it's, Dan, can I take a ministerial exemption to, uh, you know, FICA, for example, right? Can I opt out of Social Security? Um, questions that are asked about different things around, well, should we pay this tax? I want to pay these taxes, but I don't want to pay these taxes, right? Um, scripturally, right, we're called to submit to the law. We're called to, to support the government in that way. It's, it, it's not even a question, right? If we don't like the law, then we should seek to change the law. We should pursue all means of that. But in terms of actually submitting to it, I'll, I'll ask you this question. Do you think when Jesus said that, that the Roman government was particularly fair in how it taxed its citizens? Do you think that was a reality? Because <laughs> it's not, right? And I have not re- I'm not an expert in Roman taxation law. I, I just know, generally speaking, how oppressive they were, right? Like, it's, it's, it's not a great place to live. You think about the, the time where Paul lived, right? Again, not a government that's really on his side. You know what I'm saying? And they, and they both say, you need to support that work. So that's the first question. Second question comes in verse 28. This is the Sadducees. And they deny uh, that there's a resurrection. So they ask him a question about the resurrection, right? Again, thinking that they're going to trip, uh, trip, trip him up. Teacher Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. And then he goes on and gives a scenario where a woman is married to seven brothers, and he asks, whose wife in the resurrection will she be? What the Sadducees are talking about there is the law of leveret marriage. It's a big word, leveret, L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E, leveret. And it's from Deuteronomy 25. I want to read it to you. Um, So that you know what, what they're asking Jesus about, right? This is a very common practice in the Old Testament. It's from Deuteronomy 25. Uh, and I'm going to read verses 5 to 10, just so you can understand, because it's a great passage. I love this passage. Um, you'll see why in a minute. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. 
And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call to him and speak to him, and if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I cannot make it through that. I've tried. I've tried to make it through that without laughing. That's why I love this one. You can't make this stuff up. Pull his sandal off and spit in his face. It's great. Um, and so... And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. <laughs> I know, it's great, right? You don't get to read stuff like that all, every day. It's a strange practice to us, this idea. But at its heart, what it actually is, is a beautiful promise. It's a means of God's grace to perpetuate an Israelite's inheritance in the event that a wife is widowed and has no heir. It's actually protection for some of the most vulnerable people in Israel. They're about to go into the promised land, and this provision is to protect each individual family member to say, no matter what happens, even if you're without an heir and you can't have somebody who can make you an heir, your name will be part of this inheritance forever, and I will protect you and look after you. And, and if somebody fails to do that duty, then they are going to come under public shame. Because that's how important it is. That's how important the promise is. So it's actually a beautiful promise that they're misreading. And Jesus is going to say, you're not only misreading the promise, asking this question, but it shows that you don't even understand marriage in the first place nor do you understand the resurrection at all, right? God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the living. So you guys, you're missing a whole bunch of stuff here. And I want to say just a word uh, about that, because there's a lot of questions when we read Jesus' response in Luke. How are we like the angels? What is that about, right? I've done a lot of individual study on that. If you want some resources to know more about that, I'm happy to give you some, uh, some information on it. But um, here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying you're misunderstanding at, at, at its core what marriage is about. Marriage is for this life. Marriage is part of the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth with the worship of God. Okay? That's the purpose that marriage serves. But when the new creation comes and I remove all the evil from the world and all that's left are worshipers of God, then the purpose of marriage is fulfilled, right? The earth is now filled with God's glory. It is filled only with God's worship. It is done. It is finished. Beyond that, right, we know from Paul in Ephesians 5, marriage is a picture a shadow of Christ's relationship with the church. But when the reality is present, the shadow is no longer needed. So whatever you think, and April and I had this discussion about when I was doing all this study in seminary, I said I did a lot of extended work on it. We would talk about this. She's like, I don't like the idea of you being not married to me in heaven. Like, I don't know what I think about that. It's a great question. But the, but the true answer is, 
as much as April and I are often on the same page, it does not hold a candle to what it will be like to be known perfectly, fully by the Creator in perfect righteousness in the resurrection. It's far beyond it. He's in my mind. He understands my thoughts. He knows my heart. He's lived as a human. He knows everything infinitely more about me, even better than I know myself. It's a much more intimate, much more beautiful picture of that intimacy than marriage ever can present in this life. It's just, it's a shadow and a thought in that sense. So if you're, if you're not married, if you have been married and are now widowed, divorced, etc., like there are a lot of us who struggle with that. I myself didn't get married until I was 30, and my 20s were riddled with a lot of deep struggles about singleness and marriage. And I want to say, just look to the example of Jesus and Paul and, and see where marriage is going in the new creation to understand it is not the end-all, be-all of the Christian life that you have to be married to be perfectly fulfill the righteousness of, of God. You don't have to do that, right? There is a value in your singleness. There is a value in what you are doing. Um, and it is part of God's creation that it works out that way until it, until it changes, if it does. Hopefully that is a good word for you. Um, if that's a place where you have been, uh, again, we'd love to talk more with you about it if, if that's something you want to talk about. So let's look at the third question. Third question comes in verse 40, uh, 41. So they, th at this point, they won't even ask him any more questions, right? They're done. They're like, okay, you know, we give up. We can't, we can't outthink you. So he asks them a question in return. He says, how do they say then that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. If David thus calls him Lord, then how is he his son? <laughs> it's a great question. And he's saying, you have studied the scriptures, right? You guys are all the teachers. You're the experts. So ask me this simple question. One of the most important Psalms, how do you explain this? How do you explain that David's son is also the Lord? They have no idea, right? But this is the, this is the promise, right? Of all the things that they should be thinking about, the thing they should be thinking about is who is the Christ? Where is the Messiah? It's the promise for Israel. That's what their hope is in. And they're completely missing it. He's literally standing right in front of them. It's like what John says in uh, John chapter 5, verses 38 and 39. You search the scriptures diligently because you think in them you will have eternal life. But you refuse to come to me about who the scriptures testify over and over and over again. Why? Because you don't really understand Moses in the first place, because Moses wrote about me. Right? That's what he says in the book of John. And that's exactly what's going on here. He says, you want to ask who this coin belongs to? I was in the beginning. I was there when the earth was formless and void. I was in the beginning when the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. I made all of this. You want to talk about heaven? Heaven is my throne. I left it to come down to the earth to be born as a man. You want to talk about what the angels are like? I made them. You guys have no idea what you're asking. 
So let's ask some good questions, right? So those are the three questions. Let's step back and kind of take a, a look at the two categories I talked about at the beginning. The questions that we ask of God about uh, how, how do we invite him in or push him away. So let me give you a couple examples from Scripture and then uh, maybe a couple more from our own lives. So the first question ever asked in the Bible of God, very first one, Genesis 4, 9, am I my brother's keeper? Is that a good question? Is that a question that invites God in? Or is that a question that pushes God away? It's a question that pushes God away, isn't it? It's a question that says, God, I don't know what you're saying right now, but I don't really think it's my fault, right? It's a predetermined answer, right? He's trying to put God into a particular place. Um, let me give you another one. Peter asks Jesus on uh, the boat in the Lake uh, Sea of Galilee, Mark 4, 38, Jesus, don't you care that we're perishing? <laughs> when you think about it, right? <laughs> I mean, really. Like, you know, come on, Peter. I know you're funny, but that's not a good question. Yeah, of course Jesus cares. Jesus is not worried. You know, maybe you should ask a question like, hey, Jesus, why aren't you worried? Like, because I'm worried. That's at least a better question, right? Um, or uh, Martha, maybe. Lord, don't you care that my sisters left me to do the work by myself? You see how those questions, the way they're phrased, like the way that we're asking them, they, they're, not, they're not inviting God into the pain, into what we're experiencing, into what we're suffering. But if you look, for example, at the Psalms, the Psalms are riddled with questions that invite God in, that say, okay, God, I'm going through some stuff right now. How long? Why is it that the wicked seem to flourish? Why is it that everybody else seems to be doing well and I'm doing poorly? Why is it that evil seems to triumph over good? Why is it that I continue to have pain when I've asked you to take this away? Like, why are all these things? Those are great questions that invite God in to the pain, to the suffering, to the hardship, right? That's the kind of questions that say, okay, God, here I am. Would you come to me and help me understand? Bring me onto the same page. Um, when, I was, when I was single all those years, there was a stretch um, from like 23 to 28 or so where I was turned down for 13 first dates in a row. And I was in a bad, bad place, right? And I was questioning everything. And, um, and it just, it seemed so unfair. It seemed so uh, vindictive of God to do that, especially when I saw people getting married and I was like, how can this person get married? I would be a way better husband than they would be, right? Don't tell me you haven't thought it. I know you've thought it. I know you've thought it. And again, is that a question that invites God in? Or is that a question that I was asking that pushed God away, that tried to get God to do what I wanted him to do right in that moment, to, to ease my pain and suffering? I, I think you know the answer to that. Paul Tripp says um, that I am deeply persuaded 
that we, just like the people in the Bible, are always asking and answering these five fundamental questions to God. So let me give them to you. First one, God, are you really good? Are you really good? Do you really, at your core, are you really good? When, you, when I'm going through this, this singleness, when I'm being turned down for these dates, are you really being good to me? That's a real question. It's really bring. is it really good? Because it doesn't feel good. Uh, number two, God, will you do what you've promised? At the end of the day, when you say the meek will inherit the earth, are you really going to do that? Are you really going to come and right the wrongs that I've been experiencing my whole life and so many other people have? Are you really going to do that? Or are you going to change the parameters of the game 10 years from now, 20 years from now? Are you really going to do what you promised? And then related to that, number three, are you really in control of that? Do, can you actually do it? Like you say, are you going to do what you promised? That's one question. But are you actually able to do what you've promised? Which is kind of related to question number four, which is are you powerful enough to do what you want? Do you have the power? And then let me draw you one deeper on that. If you have the power to do those things, then why sometimes don't you do it? Why do you let me suffer? Why do you let other people, why do you let evil prosper? Wow, that's a great question. And the fifth one, um, which I have found, and it probably speaks to a lot of your stories personally, I, I hear it time and time again from people that I talk to, and that is, God, do you really care about me? Me. Like, like am I... You know, we talk about all this stuff in here. Am I, am I really a part of this? Do you really have an individual thought about me? Who am I that you would have that thought? Do you really care about me? Do you really have my best interests at heart? You know, for me, I, um, I went to seminary 11 years ago. I did very well in seminary. I, I was not a good, uh, acab I can't even say the word, academician. I was never good in high school. Let's put it that way. I was never good in high school. Um, I was 3'3". Three, three, I don't know, you know how many hundreds down in my class I was. Um, but I did well in seminary, and I was surprised by that. I think maybe because the first time I was interested in something. And everybody was excited about my future. I was excited about my future. And I applied to PhD programs and to pastorates all kind of all around the country. And out of all of that, I got one single callback. One. And it's only because the church was literally two blocks from my house. One. And the first question the guy asked me in my interview was, why have you spent so much time in IT? if you want to do ministry. And I didn't understand it at all. I didn't understand, and I didn't understand how to ask the questions, how to invite God into that. All I could think about was how angry I was at God. And when I graduated, I was filled with so much anger. 
and all the other people who had what I thought I deserved. It's the difference between asking the questions that we want God to answer versus inviting God into those things and saying, God, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to do? How are you trying to grow me and to make me more after the image of your son? So if you remember at the beginning, I I mentioned that man's journal that I was reading to you about his wife. At the end of it, um, it's not on the last page or the last sentence, but it's in the, you know, the last little section that he's writing. He writes this in his journal. He says, heaven will solve our problems, but not, I think, by showing us subtle reconciliations between our apparently contradictory notions. The notions will all be knocked out from under our feet, and we shall see that there was never really any problem. The man who wrote that, that whole journal, was C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest thinkers of the, the Christian world in the 20th century, married his wife, Joy, uh, in the hospital because she had terminal cancer. So married her knowing she was going to die and thought, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to explain grief to the world. And what happened to him was profound doubts about his faith. Profound questions about the nature of humanity and existence and the resurrection, right? If that's going to happen to folks like him, it's going to happen to us, and it's okay. It's okay because we're inviting God in. We invite God into those deep questions, into our pain. Wherever you're at this morning, whatever questions you're asking, whether it's about sin struggles, whether it's about your faith, whatever it's about, I want to promise you three things. Number one, God is not scared by it. He's not scared by your questions. He's not afraid to hear them, and he wants to hear them. And that's number two. He actually cares about your questions. He doesn't bother to put off the Pharisees, even though he knows the Pharisees' questions are garbage. He doesn't, he doesn't say, I'm not, let's just preempt this all, and I'm just going to... He listens to them, and he responds, because that's who he is. He cares about your questions. Number three, that is, he is going to answer them. Might not be the answer that you're expecting. Might not come in the way that you want it to be, right? But you can bring your questions, you can bring your fears, you can bring your doubts... You can bring your desires, you can bring them before God and say, Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come to thee. Let's pray.